0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. I'm Christian Kerr and I'm Vicky Riley. We are still travelling along the highways and byways of Scottish literature discovering and rediscovering the best Scottish writing. As ever the podcast is sponsored by Berlin Limited one of Scotland's leading independent publishers as we celebrate our 25th anniversary year. Today, we're jumping into our time machine and heading back, way back, in fact, (laughs) to the turn of the 17th century, to Reformation Scotland, and the very first woman to have her work circulated in print under her own name, or in other words, to be published. The first woman to be published in Scotland. She is Elizabeth Melville, and we will be looking at her most famous work, the dream vision poem, Ain Godly Dream. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, yeah, so Christian will be, and I will be talking about somebody who is, I think it's safe to say that she's very little known in Scotland let alone internationally um, though there has been of late a little groundswell of appreciation for, for Melville's work um, and then later we'll be staying in Reformation Scotland and um, but we'll be travelling to St Andrews and we'll be talking to Polygon's own Shirley Mackay who has been writing the, the wonderful Hugh Cullen Mysteries um, it's a hor- historical crime series that we've got a real soft spot here on Absolutely. the good ship Berlin um, and if you've not read them yet, and shame on you if you haven't, then we hope that our chat with Shirley will uh, send you their way. So we're we're keen in this podcast not just to talk about, you know, the tried and tested foot soldiers of Scottish literature, the obvious names. Um, we want to be able to shine a light on, on the hidden corners and uncover the, the hidden gems and read things that we wouldn't naturally gravitate to. Um, and I think that's something we can say about Elizabeth Melville. I mean, if I'm honest, I hadn't even heard of her <laughs> before, we start, yeah, before we started thinking about the things to do in this podcast. But I think as um, Scotland's first ever woman published, she very much merits our attention. And I um, That's not to say that, you know, there probably weren't other women published before Elizabeth Melville, especially as Anon, (laughs) that (laughs) famous author. Prolific. (laughs) Yeah. And um, Mary Queen of Scots as well, we know, wrote some um, French poetry. And obviously, women were also very intrinsic to the Gaelic tradition, which you know, is is much more folk and and oral rather than imprinted. So Elizabeth Melville absolutely then does take on the particular honour of being the first woman published. But she's not also um, just noteworthy because of that. Um, Her work actually stands
0: on its own merits. Absolutely. Um, And... As you say, um, there is, has been a wee groundswell, mm. um, not quite an earthquake, no, <laughs> yeah. not or yet. an apocalypse. <laughs> not yeah. yet, not yet. <laughs> um, Melville was recognised um, in 2014 with the dedication um, of an inscribed stone in Mako's Court at the Writers' Museum on Edinburgh's Royal Mile. Mm. You should go and visit and read all the inscriptions. All of them. Yeah, very um, lovely. The stone was unveiled by Jermaine Greer, the feminist critic and broadcaster, who, along with her co-editors, um, had placed Melville sort of right in the portico of the rather wonderfully named anthology Kissing the Rod, an <laughs> anthology of 17th century women's verse,
1: yeah.
0: um, uh, which was published in
1: 1988.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of at the height of feminist criticism. <laughs> um And uh, the inscription that is on uh, the stone comes from In Godly Dream. Um, And it's very appropriately uh, a declaration of resistance. Yeah. Um, Those tyrants' threats, though lions rage and roar, defy them all and fear not to win out. Which is quite stunning. Quite yeah. stunning. <laughs> so, since the 1970s and 80s, uh, Melville has been garnering critical attention in early modern studies, uh, and at academic conferences where there are often performances of her songs and sonnets. Um, seems like she features in anthologies and guides to Scottish literature, including now this one. Yeah. <laughs> um. And uh, Jamie Reed Baxter. Is currently preparing a complete scholarly edition of her poetry too. Yes. So she's right for discovery, and her work is pretty fascinating. Though since it's almost entirely religious and saturated with biblical allusions, it does require some mind bending from us 21st century readers.
1: I think. <laughs> yeah. And um, thanks to Jamie Reed Baxter for his edition that we used to read in Godly Dream* as well, um, which, which we got from the very lovely Central Library,
0: <laughs> drawing <laughs> um, on all resources. Yeah.
1: Um, so *Ain Godly Dream*. Um, Elizabeth Melville's best known work was published in 1603 a very um, famous year in the history of these isles, just as James the Sixth was becoming James the First as well. Um, it's a Calvinist dream vision poem, in godly dream, where we follow uh, the narrator, if you want to call it the yeah, narrator.
0: I yeah. think so. It's a first-person narrative. <laughs> yeah,
1: first-person yeah. narrative. And this person is at the end of her tether with her life. She's really miserable, mm-hmm. um, not just with herself but with the world. So she decides to sit. And pray before she goes to bed. And then when she falls asleep, she has a vision where an angel comes to visit her and takes her across. Um, uh, on a journey across forests and seas and things, a really hard, toiling journey that demands a lot of perseverance. Yep. And um, and then just as she's about to catch a glimpse of heaven, she can see it in the distance with her guide, mm-hmm. she um, is then taken right down to hell to confirm again mm-hmm. that... Um, the, the journey to heaven needs a lot of work and courage and then she wakes up and she realizes the truth of what the angel has shown and told her and then she vows to you know mend her her pitying or self-pitying ways and keep on fighting the good fight
0: um, the trials of life, and, and while encouraging us to do the same as well, right? And just as you, you know, as, as you say, that last bit is sort of a moralized sermon, yeah. isn't it? Um, but it's appended to this kind of amazing, m- mythical, allegorical journey through a landscape.
1: Yeah. Um, so, but before we talk more about the poem, uh, let's talk a little bit more about Elizabeth Melville. There isn't a huge amount to go on. Um, when it comes to her biographical details. Um, We don't know for sure her birth date, though it's believed to be sometime in the 1570s. Um, though we don't have an exact date and then she was married to um, John Colville at some point in the 1590s okay. though again we don't know an exact date mm-hmm. <laughs> and she died um, probably at some point in the early 1640s just as the civil war was about to start raging yeah. but again we don't have an exact date so the only thing we do have an exact date for in her um, bi- biography is the publication of A Godly Dream by Robert uh, Robert Charteris in Edinburgh in 1603.
0: Yeah, which is just (laughs) astonishing. It's really interesting just as you're running through her bio there that she married John Colville um, but she's still known as Elizabeth Melville Yes, because Scottish ladies?
1: Yeah, in that period they didn't take on their husband's name. No.
0: So she was Elizabeth Melville
1: for her whole life. Though sometimes she was known as Lady Lady Kuros Kuros. after her marriage. Um, But I find it fascinating that there isn't a lot about her because she comes from a well-established yeah, Scottish that's family. that's what's so weird.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, her father? Oh, yes. Her father, James Melville, uh, was a courtier to both Mary, Queen of Scots, and to her son, James VI. Um, it's also said that he brokered the marriage deal between uh, Lord Darnley and Mary, Queen of Scots, James's parents. So In 1603, when James VI moved down to London to... Uh, take up the uh, throne of England after the Union of the Crowns. Um, James Melville did not follow him there.
1: Yeah, which is an interesting...
0: Yeah, because that just was like the beginning of the Scots on the make in London. (laughs) (laughs) But um, James Melville, father of Elizabeth, had started his court career as a page to Mary Queen of Scots. So as that page, he would have spent time in the French court, Mm. which was notable for highly educated and literate women. And um, there's a line of thought that 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 might have influenced his decision to educate his daughters Mm. in the way that he did um it's also worth mentioning um in the court context um that a lot of the 16th century poetry that um has survived and is anthologized uh today um circulated in court coteries um in both England and Scotland Wyatt and Surrey were the Tudor courtier poets for example um but the 1580s uh, saw a coterie of poets called the Castalian Band um, <laughs> at the court of James the Sixth, and he himself, James the Sixth, wrote an exchange verse uh, with other Macar poets mm-hmm. such as Alexander Montgomery and Alexander Hume. Yep. Um, and Hume, Alexander Hume, dedicated his own collection of hymns to Elizabeth Melville. Uh, which is one of the first references to her, yeah,
1: before she published in Godly Dream,
0: yeah, yeah, um and it seems likely that the group of friends, uh, which is mentioned on the title page as having encouraged or actually requested um that Elizabeth Melville published the poem, mm. um were sort of like minded people um with whom she regularly exchanged. and stuff in manuscript yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah. Um, and so that's the 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 court life and the literary life and and there's really nothing much about her domestic life either Mm. Um, we're not completely sure of how many children she had and how many survived her though um uh, research into her archive of letters Um, sort of suggest that she had probably at least seven children maybe more, maybe less (laughs) and there are hints too that the marriage that she had was not the best, that Mm. her husband was not uh, a really great manager of their estate that um, there were a lot of money woes, even though they were, you know, of the aristocratic bent, and that he had some shortcomings as a family man too. So you might suggest, who knows, this is pure conjecture, (laughs) but that might be a reason why she threw herself so wholeheartedly Mm. into her religious devotion. Um, But also in her letters, Elizabeth Melville herself, she always expressed concern that she she knew that she neglected her family duties because of her devotion to her religious beliefs. Um, She was very close to the leaders of the Kirk in Scotland, um, even writing poems about the imprisonment of um, influential figures such as Andrew Melville and John Welsh when they were imprisoned.
0: Right, they had antagonised... James the Six yeah
1: mm-hmm. and in the last part of her life she became heavily involved in the covenanting movement um, organising a lot of services and campaigns she had well, it's said that she had great skills as an organiser, especially because she had amazing contacts, because she had this coterie of Absolutely, great yeah. poets, great court um, people um, and court people in, in, in her little black book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so she could um, organise lots of great things for, for for their campaign. And she was respected as a pious woman of intellect. And so she, she was never really c- c- seen as a woman who should think
0: more of her domestic duties which is yeah quite interesting almost had her own vocation or it was clear yeah two people yeah yeah
1: and though women at that time in the church where they were not permitted to sermonize to make speeches in public and all that kind of thing you could say that that's exactly what she did in her poetry particularly with poems like in godly dream
0: yeah absolutely and you know her the devotion like really comes through in um her, her poetry anyway i think it's quite hard for us living yeah. in like a multi-den- multi-denominational or even a secular society in the um,
1: 21st century yeah, yeah to
0: understand the kind of religious fervor of the past yeah um but it might be helpful to give a brief and very oversimplified <laughs> sketch of the religious landscape of late 16th century scotland um which was quite different to that of Tudor England um, I sometimes feel that uh, we learn about the Reformation through Henry VIII's divorce yeah
2: yeah
0: um, <laughs> and uh, with a sort of sidebar about John Knox yeah but um, the Protestant Reformation took hold over Europe in different ways and in different places mm. And in Scotland, the Reformation saw the establishment of a Protestant Presbyterian church, Mm. no longer governed by bishops appointed by the monarch, but governed instead by a committee of ministers, which was known as the Presbytery. Mm. And this was calamitous for Mary Queen of Scots, Mm -hmm. who was Catholic, and of course then, you know, really was not a member of the faith. But it also wrestled the church away from the state, by creating a sort of uh, more egalitarian structure and taking the appointments out of the gift. Mm. Um,
1: Yeah. Which, you know, didn't go down well with the royal courts.
0: (laughs) No. Well, and particularly as the monarch believed himself appointed to be God, so it really disrupted that structure. Yeah. And James VI was a real believer in the divine right of kings. And so he found that, very disruptive Um, and though he was a protestant he found that the church's autonomy undermined his political power and his and so his reign and that of his son charles was characterized by a series of struggles with the scottish church mostly about his right to impose appointments Mm. and even texts like prayer books and liturgies and stuff on the scottish church and this all came to a head with the signing of the Covenant in 1638, and a decade? Yeah, well... More than a decade? I mean, that led to the English Civil War, really. Anyway, perhaps the most important thing about the Protestant Reformation, though, uh-huh, is that it encourages the individual to form their own relationship with God. Yeah. And it does this in lots of ways, and that in itself is politically radical. mm but the Calvinist brand of Protestantism, Protestantism that took hold in Scotland has two aspects um, that I think it's crucial to understand to sort of get have a little way into this poem. Yeah. Um, first, um, that the Calvinist view of man is that humans are lowly and wretched and worthless oh. in comparison to <laughs> God, who is perfect and a decisive judge who extends grace and mercy to us terrible, terrible humans, you know, in a fallen world, um, and that um, people uh, have to struggle to attain salvation, strive for it. Um, And secondly, um, I think that in any discussion of... um, Protestantism and literature. Mm. It's really important to emphasise that um, Calvinism, in particular, pra- placed a premium on the private reading of scripture yeah. as a way of like accessing silent
1: God. reading. You yeah, know? that became much more prevalent. Where, you know, with the print and press and all that. Before reading was something that you did out loud. Yeah, um, and it, and you know, to read to yourself.
0: So became became more
1: important, a a radical act.
0: Yeah, and it became more important. Well, because it allowed for autonomy of thought. Yeah, and it became more important to be able to to read Mm. because that became the conduit to God rather than sitting
1: the word listening. In the beginning, there was the word to a
0: mediator. Yeah, yeah, the book. Of the Calvinist yeah. church is the Geneva Bible and the Geneva Bible is like heavily annotated and this like job of interpreting the word of mm. God again and again um, became a sort of like r- ritual of faith
1: mm.
0: and a way that you proved your faith and um, it also meant though that you know as religion became really textual um, literature became stuffed with sort of biblical allusions and interpretive games so this cultivation of an individual relationship with god sort of encouraged a new theme of emotion mm. in religious expression you know like people became really aware of how they felt towards god mm. like private as they privately read
1: So to the poem, um, now, we've already, you know, said that we are 21st century gals, pretty secular. So we were very aware that we're coming to this poem from a completely different context to the time that it was written in. And I especially, I mean, I am someone who has not had much religion in their life at all. It just didn't form a big part of my upbringing Um, so there was a lot of things that surprised me in in this poem Um, because you know nowadays the Kirk has a bit of a reputation for being dour Mm. and cold and lifeless and there's no melody or passion or joy
0: Mm. you know the you know, it's all... Partly as a result of the Protestant Reformation, Yeah, right? and
1: it's all, you know, the, the great char- char- character of the, 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 the Protestant church in, in Is Scotland. Is to have, like, done away with
0: all the fripperies. Yeah,
1: and you just think of, you know, Ricky Fulton doing Reverend I Am <laughs> Jolly. Jolly. So, but then you read In Godly Dream and, you know, some of her sonnets as well and the language that she uses in them is, is absolutely, it's completely the opposite, it's full of passion and it's full yeah. of soul and it's and, um, and and so when I was reading them, and I was just I was reminded of torch songs or um, re- deep
0: soul music. I love that analogy. It's, but it was yeah. you know,
1: and so but instead of you know lamenting the loss of your your love, it, you were lamenting about God and right. the state of your soul. You know she's t- she talks about how she can't eat and she can't drink, and there's lots of <laughs> sighs and moans, and she's incontinent, but. And not in the way that we might think of incontinence now. Incontinence meaning a lack of control, about a ban- there's a sense of abandonment and frenzy. Yeah. And, you know, it just it absolutely reminded me of soul music. Um, yeah, and ecstasy as well. And That's yeah, such
0: an important...
1: Yeah, so it was funny that, you know, soul music came in the 20th century, came from the gospel tradition. Um, but back in the 16th century when Elizabeth was writing the tradition then was to take love lyrics, love songs and then transform the language then and the context into a religious one, so it just um, just reminds you of the circle of life and the cycle of art and the regeneration of each era. you know, what you could say the, is the call and response of art and how they just they keep feeding each other and reflecting each other, and I just I thought that was that was quite um yeah
0: quite special. yeah absolutely and this tradition that you mentioned um uh of like rewriting um is is so fascinating and fun actually i think it's you know yeah it, it's, it's it, so it's a tradition of moralizing fables and songs and rewriting and adapting them in order to incorporate them into like a life that might be sort of totally devoted to god Mm. which Um, her life
1: definitely seems to have yeah Yeah. I
0: think so Um, and uh, a lot of her religious poetry could be set to popular yeah melodies
1: yeah Mm. yeah.
0: Um, but most famously uh, perhaps she um, she, Melville herself rewrites um, Christopher Marlowe's far more famous poem (laughs) um the passionate shepherd to his love which begins come live with me and be my love and we will all the pleasures prove um and um you know it's a persuasive yeah, uh, po- t- poem, and she adapts it, mm. um into and I think this gives a really good flavor of the sort of tenor
1: yeah of- she talks about being ravished by God and things like that and, and not in a godly dream, but in in some of her other poems and yeah it, it's just it's just something that you're not used to as as being characterful of scottish
0: calvinism <laughs> no absolutely not and so um she rewrites marlowe and she says come live with me and be my love and all these pleasures thou shalt prove that in my words hath warned thee O loathe this life and live with me this life is but a blast of breath nothing so sure as dreadful death and since the time no man can know set not thy love on things below for things below will wear away and beauty brave will soon decay look to that life that lasts forever and love the love that fails thee never and it goes on for many more stanzas (laughs) um but that's the kind of sort of playful rewriting of see you know that sees um, the same kind of love mm. or, or that sort of uh, transmutes yeah. erotic love into uh, religious yeah. or
1: yeah devotional the different kind yeah. of devotion yeah <laughs> not
0: or and not really I I know I love how how the two like the registers mm. sort of pattern onto each other yeah um, in so many ways yeah. But also it's um, sort of like apocalyptic and powerful at the Mm. same time. It reminds me of uh, John Donne's Holy Sonnets.
1: um,
0: And like, batter my heart, three-person God. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, and he says, uh, For I, lest thou enthrall thee, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, unless thou ravish me. See. And it's like this contradiction yeah. that like I won't be able to be a good chaste person unless I am ravished and therefore made unchaste by God.
1: Yeah.
0: It's it's a weird substitution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but always yeah, a... so cleverly teased out. Yeah. Like they were so aware of these contradictions, I think.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah so i mean that's the thing there's an awful lot about the poem that that puzzles me or or just leaves me with a lot of questions because yeah. you know i just I, I can't get into that mindset for the church mm. <laughs> like i respect it i completely respect it but i don't understand like just the that use of language that yeah it's just I just don't understand that kind of a rhetoric a lot, and so I came away from the poems thinking that I would really like to sit down and chat to to old Elizabeth just to to get into her head a little bit more and with you know with keeping on with the sermonizing and all that kind of thing there's a lots of repetition in in Godly dream yeah lots of repetition of words, lots of repetition of phrases um which is very similar to the way we think of sermons and and speeches nowadays, you know, um sin abounds, my sins increase, sin sin sins, sin is everywhere. Yes. I loathe my life is another that, mm-hmm. that is mentioned a lot in Godly Dream. And you just wonder what are behind those statements, so um passionate statements. Is it is it merely that she like she's ashamed of feeling weak and that maybe she's doubtful of her of her, you know, of lack of faith. of her faith, yeah, mm. and is she, or is there something that she's not telling us, <laughs> like a
0: specific <laughs> sin? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that, I think that it's more general. Yeah, I think. I think that's the case.
1: Though it must be said that mostly her despair in the poem is directed to the world rather mm. than herself, and how hard it is to make your way through a world. Um, I thought upon this false and iron age. The world
0: prevails. Our enemies are strong. And um Yeah, I mean that's really divisive, isn't it? Yeah. like our enemy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm and I'm really interested why she uses the word iron with a capital I. Every time she uses the mm. word iron, it's a capital I throughout the poem. And I always thought the Iron Age um firstly was a prehist- was the prehistoric time. So what what's she talking about with our Iron Age and then the Industrial Revolution,
0: but this was written before the Industrial <laughs> Revolution. So what's she talking about with this yes. Iron Age? So I think the Iron and the Iron is just it's it's it appears in uh, as sort of. Uh, yeah, the age is iron, but then there's also, like, torture materials as well. There are, you know, she talks about being pricked by yes, iron yes. and then having to walk across, basically, a floor of nails. Yes. The angel says, you have to go over these. <laughs> and she goes quickly and her feet are not hurt so much. Mm. Um, but um, I think the, the idea of the Iron Age um, here is, um, I think, part of the sort of range of... A, like allusion to the poetic tradition right. um that's here because um you know the pilgrim's journey is structured like Bunyan's pilgrim's progress mm. um you know there are all these sort of uh, stops along the way and allegorical um mountains and castles and pits and what have you which is all religious and Christian, but there's also this journey down to hell, Mm. which is sort of epic in the sense of Homer and Virgil and Dante. Yeah, yeah. The Iron Age is a sort of ancient pattern, um, which comes from Hesiod, really, but probably in the Renaissance was most well-known from Ovid. Right. And um, he talks about four ages uh, of the world, um, in his Metamorphoses, which is, like, hugely important, um, to Shakespeare and, like, all the great Renaissance writers, Mm -hmm. um, and so the first age, of course, is the Golden Age.
1: Right, so that's the promised land, kind of thing. Which
0: may or may not have ever existed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and after the Golden Age, which is, like, the age of justice and peace, um, where everyone and i think of that as really as the sort of pastoral idyll right you know people like managing the flock and living mm. contentedly within your own society without much conflict from outside um and then um the silver age um which is then followed by the bronze age and or all of these are sort of like the development, it's like the development of civilization right. um, away from sort of agriculture, like from the pastoral uh, into like a more sort of productive, agricultural, urban kind of um, society. And um, the Bronze Age, then there's sort of warfare. But then finally in the Iron Age, um, that's when men really go to war. Right. And they sort of divide, you know, there are nation states and conflicts and... um, Right. Okay. That makes much more sense. All the good virtues have fled.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I had my historian head on rather than... Yes. No,
0: it's like broader, broader. Right. and I think, that, uh, I think that what is going on in all poetry, though, is that almost all poetry is written from the Iron Age, imagining <laughs> the gold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Um, Wishing for the golden age. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is partly like the uh, Calvinist um sort of view that man is fallen yeah
1: um
0: and you know, melville is really em- emphatic um and uh she's quite visceral in her sort of description mm.
1: um
0: about how existing in this world imbues her with like this sort of sinfulness and just the feeling that she's constantly constantly being infected by sin yeah um (laughs) she she writes what can we do we clog it our with sin in filthy vice our senseless souls are drowned it yeah and you know this is
1: everywhere yeah
0: like to get to um heaven Mm. and escape from this world like to progress towards the glistering castle
1: and i suppose in those times as well like everywhere was so manky as well. You you would feel that everything was clogging you and and
0: seeping. If everything is really close together as well, you're inhaling like other people. It
1: it doesn't feel just a metaphor. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, like the calvinist rhetoric about the elect and the chosen one that that this was when i was kind, when mm. the, when when my eyebrows were raising slightly just again i just don't under i just i don't come from that point of view i yeah. just don't understand it and so when she writes things like lord jesus come and save thy own elect and my blood alone did save that that they, that the soul from sin and you're just like
0: yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting is that there's a sort of sense of entitlement there.
1: Yeah, I, that that's that's what I can't get my head around mm. yet about being chosen as the ones that are allowed to go to heaven or the yeah. promised land. I
0: think I think there's a reproachfulness in her. Dialogue with the angel. She, you know, she's calling on God and she's saying, "God, why is it so hard? Because I'm a good. I'm good.
1: Yeah, I'm one of your chosen ones. Yeah. So I shouldn't be this weary,
0: right? And I always "Mm." and um, that. Very divisive, mm, first of all, yeah. and you know, it's not—it's not necessarily as egalitarian as as egalitarian yeah, as we're led to believe exactly. that like its foundation, yeah. is meant to be. So there's there's that that contradiction in Calvinist mm.
1: rhetoric, and and as it presents itself as like a force of good and a force of you know a democratization of how religion works, and yeah. yet. They Talk about the elect, they talk about
0: the chosen. Yeah, it's just something I can't get my head around. <laughs> no, well, and and so there's this there's this sort of sense of entitlement, but the angel also says to her, You know, don't get over ambitious.
1: Yeah, watch you, yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know,
1: just as particular-
0: so pride, of course, is yeah, the sin. That's yes. one of the con- con- uh, contradictions, or yeah. one of the sins that a Calvary, uh, someone who believes himself to be elect, will be. Obviously, guilty of
1: yeah, and this and it, and it, that's especially the angel saying that is especially obvious at the bit where she gets the glimpse of heaven mm-hmm. and she thinks she's just about there and right. she's feeling quite pleased with herself and then all of a sudden, then, you know, the guide
0: Jesus brings her down to hell. Yeah, but even, and and the angel says, the nearer heaven, the harder is the way. Yeah,
1: yeah, but even then, even when she's brought down to hell. um she can't help but give a little dig at her, at her religious enemies you know she says right. is this said I the papist's purging place meaning is this god forsaken place purgatory that um you know um, and and then and then the jesus guide says no pur- purgatory doesn't exist the brain of man invented that purging place and and it's, it's a, again a sly dig at people that, that that don't believe
0: what she believes he says uh you know the that purging place for greediness together they the catholics consent to say that that souls in torment must remain yeah because the way out of purgatory is to pay for your indulgences Mm,
1: mm.
0: yeah no it's i mean that's really that's really funny um,
1: so, you know, there, there's so much in it that's righteous and passionate and powerful. And then there's these little moments
0: where you're just like, oh, Elizabeth, <laughs> stop it. Right. And it ends. So, I, I mean, I think the sense of the struggle as being hard and laborious mm. and sweaty and grim. And,
1: and can seem... Never ending.
0: Yeah. And just Is too very much to bear. Yeah. Well done. Oh,
1: yeah. You, in
0: this poem. Mm. You know, I mean, there's a physicality to it. Yeah. I think that comes through in the language. Yeah. And the particular kind of Scots. Yeah, that she writes in, mm. right? Yeah, which is, um, I think, different from the Scots that we've encountered in other texts that we've discussed. Yeah. You know, it's not Robert Burns' Scott, no, and um, certainly not Irvin Welsh's
1: <laughs> no. Scott. <laughs> but it's it, again, it's it's expressive. It really paints a picture of the muck and the gore and the heaviness and the.
0: The hardship, it's so yeah, and yet the poem resolves in this sort of positive way. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Or it's about um, you'll get there in the end. Yeah. Or or or, no short present hardship for future future reward. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But she kind of says there's a sort of way where she sort of says celebrate the hardship. Yes.
0: You know, well because you're suffering the hardship, yeah, marks you as. Yeah, elect and good, and so she ends yeah. the poem.
1: It's quite a start, and at the end, you know, the start is so weary, and and then the end is so
0: triumphant. Right, even and actually, at- as we we're calling it the end, I realise that it's actually the poem is only four hundred and fifty old lines, yeah. and this is actually a hundred lines of it, so it's about a quarter of the poem. Yeah, is this sort of. You know, triumphant,
1: yeah, 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 and because she actually doesn't get to heaven in the, the vision, no. she, she, she wakes up before it's she okay. gets. It's always deferred. Yeah, she, <laughs> she wakes up, but still, that whole dream, even though she doesn't get to heaven, she's really greatly encouraged by the dream. Yes, and that's what that's you know, and so the, the, the statement on the stone about the tyrants and the lions raging and roaring, it remains very stunning. Hello, we're here in the Berlin offices. Um, Christian and I with the very fabulous Shirley Mackay <laughs> <laughs> If you don't know, um, Shirley Mackay is a Polygon author and she has written a fantastic series of books Hugh, The Hugh Cullen Mysteries beginning with uh, Hugh and Cry and then all the way up to uh, last year she released another, uh, the, the latest Hugh Cullen book, 1588 A Calendar of Crime and we've brought Shirley in to, to talk um, today because the Hugh Cullen Mysteries um are a fantastic um, no- novels based in Saint Andrews in the late sixteenth century, smack bang in the Elizabeth Melville territory. So we thought it was they were these are great novels to provide a context for the time that Elizabeth Melville was living in. So hello, Shirley. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Hugh Cullen mysteries, how you came to uh, write them, and uh, why you chose
2: that period to to write about. Well. Yeah, I think the idea behind the whole project was that I wanted to write about um, the young years of James VI, when he was mm. James VI, and before he came, James I of England. Because yeah. people know a lot about the post-1603 yeah. period, and less about that period in Scotland. They know a lot about Mary Queen of Scots, mm-hmm. but James's reign, I felt, had been you know overlooked and... Um, there's an enormous amount, an enormous amount of literature set in Elizabethan England, but the equivalent period in Scotland, not so much. Yeah. And I felt that people perhaps had a sense that it was very dour and dark and um, <laughs> miserable and depressing, which which it wasn't at all because when the court was in Scotland, there was quite a lot of colour and mm. um, pageantry. And pageantry, but also, you know, an intellectual yeah. um, environment going on. All that changed really when James moved down to England because he took the court with him. Mm. Um, but it was a place where people were writing, and they were, you know, to some extent, they were even painting, which yeah it appears in Queen and Country. Yeah. and um, and the books are set at St Andrews University, which means that you have an academic um, uh, culture, which is important because it also means that you have links with the overseas, links with mm-hmm. France, and particularly with the mm. Low Countries. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to really show that there was a whole whole world in Scotland mm-hmm. at that time, and. Hugh Cullen, my hero, is a, he's a, um, a pseudo-academic lawyer at St yeah. Andrews University. He's been educated um, as a student at St Andrews and then sent to Paris to study law. Mm. And he comes back. And um, his father, who has been an advocate in Edinburgh, wants him to pursue the law. But he's reluctant to do this. And he becomes uh, an amateur detective, <laughs> if you like. Yes. <laughs> and he is helped by um, his friend Giles Locke who has been appointed um, medicina mediciner at St Salvator's College in St Andrews um, because when the un- when the kirk was reformed the universities were also reformed yeah. and at St Andrews they said that the provost of St Salvator should be a doctor they should have a, a, a medic a physician and they should have a lawyer They didn't actually have a faculty of medicine or a faculty of law. They didn't teach these subjects. You had to go to Paris or to the low countries to study them. So these were more or less sinecures. So the idea is that, um, you know, Giles is the the doctor and Hugh is the lawyer. They don't have a great deal to do (laughs) other than solve solve mysteries. (laughs) So within the um, parameters of what's available... Mm-hmm. You know, historically, yeah, they yeah. sort of ex- push, I push that as far as I can yeah. and use the conventions of crime fiction as well to make it into a, what I hope is a satisfying mystery story
1: So you've got this amazing backdrop of religious strife um, court intrigue because during the period of your Hugh Cullen Mysteries they
2: start in 15... 1578
1: and, and we're they, up to
2: 1588 We are, yes I think originally I'd envisaged going to 1603, and then I realised that at the rate I was writing them, (laughs) I I hadn't intended to write them in real time and to sort of set on each year. But um, there was something that happened in each of those years that made Mm -hmm. me think I've got to actually use this historical event as the germ of the story. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the politics and the the historical context are are fairly peripheral to the story, which is about real people's lives. I mean, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how people lived and Mm. felt. And... um, but how those big stories affect it's the well, small yes, community? That's right. That's yeah. right. And the other thing is that some of the things that happened could only have happened in that place and time. Yeah. James was—he was very clever, actually, at playing along with both sides, and he often did have have Catholic favourites. But that, you know, that I think was positive for scotland because it, it helped to avoid sort of um yeah. descent through the country where it worked, it worked quite too well. too much bloodshed yes 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 yeah yeah i mean you didn't sort of have the purges no. that you had of catholics in um in england and mm. um recusants being um you know imprisoned and 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 the rest of it so it was a much more it was a much more tolerant um regime for that reason um well, there was, of course, you know, dissension between the people and the crown. But I, I think the Reformation in Scotland was much more. Um, it, it, there was much less strife because it was not imposed by the crown down as it had right. been in England. You know, yes. it sort of came from the people up, and so um, it, it it was it was much more social. And Scotland, I mean, ever yeah. since I think has been much more social, and that's one of the the interesting things because it did give opportunities. For people to you know to become educated and mm-hmm. to, and uh, and I I satirised the um, Reformed Church quite mercilessly <laughs> actually you know I think it was a very positive force yeah, in, in many ways yeah. and um, you know and and of School course and it parish. was a force exactly yeah. and um, and 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 really the same Kirk sessions who were oppressing people were also providing um, material comforts for them when they needed them and mm-hmm. um, you know it was a social security system yeah. and it you know and it was all in closing you know provided that you were prepared to follow the rules then. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course people aren't and so you you get the um, the, the conflicts and the stories which are fun and when you take calvinism you know to its extreme i mean it's very easy to satirize and it's, <laughs> it's enjoyable to do that
1: Yes, we've been talking about Elizabeth Melville's in Godly Dream. Um do, are you familiar with Elizabeth, yes. Melville's
2: Elizabeth Melville's father? His um his memoir was the source for my mm. description of Walsingham's visit to Scotland in um in friend and foe. Elizabeth sent Walsingham up um you know on a, <laughs> a thankless errand to try and convince him that um you know he he should well first of all you know he should remain Protestant and he should um consider his alliance with, with England over and above everything else and that he shouldn't have um, advisers round him who she didn't approve of. James okay. took exception to this. But um, she lent... Walsingham was very ill at the time and Elizabeth mm-hmm. lent him a carriage to travel in. When he arrived in Scotland, this is the part that I... I Took from um, Melville because I don't think it's recorded anyone anywhere else. And he mentions that him coming in this carriage, but because there are no roads, and there were no roads to mm-hmm. speak of in Scotland, yeah. it wasn't designed for, <laughs> for carriages. I mean, they were the barely sort of um, wheeled carts until the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had the most miserable time because you know, <laughs> on an unsprung carriage where there are no roads. Okay. And of course, what was um, meant to be a sign of status was interpreted by the local people as being a sign of weakness. You know, this right, man is just an invalid. He's in a carriage. Mm-hmm. You know, he has to be carried around. Mm-hmm. So it really undermined his um, his embassy. Interesting. And, um, and, and that's in, in Melville. So I thought that was that, that, it interest. That, that amused me because I could imagine the little boys sort of running after him. So you have
1: this stunning political backdrop. What was it that made you decide to use that backdrop to tell crime stories to tell mysteries
2: I think the period lends itself mm. very mm. very well to that because it, you know it, it's a period where you have a lot of you have a lot of intrigue and even the literature of the period they like riddles they like <laughs> yes. acrostics they yes. like you know they like hiding things in plain sight they have mm. um, you know jewelry with hidden compartments and all and, and you know, the puzzle you know it, it works death that paintings yes, yes yes exactly <laughs> um all that works very well, and also I think the fact that you're sort of you're on the cusp of everything. I mean, science and discovery. Mm. And that you, there's so much out there. The world is coming much closer, so it's a you know it's an exciting period when you can do you can do a lot with it. And then, of course, you have all the um, the, the religion, the, the tensions, and the conflict um, that come from the Reformation itself.
1: Yeah, the first which... three books um, definitely seem. Um, more sort of standalone mysteries, and then by the fourth book, it, all the mysteries and the intrigue they become much more deeper, and so there's not a, there's not like a central crime to be yeah. solved. There's just there's just lots of intrigue and mystery running through because of the political atmosphere at the time. Um, so and so to me, as I was saying to you earlier, a lot of these books they feel. You know, everybody talks about how um, TV shows are now novelistic. Yeah. Well, I I got that sense from from these books as well. Hugh Cullen, the, you seem to, you want to binge read them in the same mm. way that you you binge watch uh, Breaking Bad or The Wire or something like
2: that. I think think this is something that happens when you write a series of books that you either... I mean, you either just sort of write the same book five times, which I was trying not to do. (laughs) the Same book in a different (laughs) colour. Or you get deeper and deeper into that world. And as you do, you know, it it, it goes Um, in all directions. And the the problem is reining it in, actually. (laughs) The problem is not... (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's good well, that, you know... Less expand. You know how, like, how everybody n-
1: nobody ever wants to move to Midsummer, And so <laughs> right. it would be the same as if there were... Oh, here's Saint another Andrews. murder in St. Andrews yes. in the sixteenth. So, like, you've got s- different mysteries in, d- in different books and yeah. and they all
2: provide different levels yes, of intrigue. that's right. I mean, I, th- I think there's the, they have different motives. I mean, yeah. as well, with crime, there are only so many motives that you can use. Right. Sex and, and money. And again, it is... <laughs> It it is very difficult to come up with um, original, original plot lines, Mm. and history is really suggestive and helpful for that because there are things that happen that can only happen at that time and place. So it gives you it gives you a lead in, Mm -hmm. and um, and the characters do as well. I mean, you know, a character comes to mind, and you think, yes, that you know, he would behave like this, and he would do that, and even people who are spies or um,
1: yeah, you know,
2: or who may seem to be traitors, Mm -hmm. you know, are, are are conflicted yeah it's hard i mean it must have been hard for, for people whose religion was completely overturned and everything yeah. that you believed in yeah um so people who who still believe in mary you know why wouldn't you if you've um, been <laughs> if this is your you know, if you're suddenly told that your your god and your your monarch are <laughs> wrong are <to> be completely <laughs> yeah. reformed, that can be a hard yeah. thing you know a hard thing to come to terms with so
1: yeah. So you've done five standalone Hugh Cullen books. Um Hugh and Cry, Fate and Fortune, Time and Tide, Friend and Foe and Queen and Country. And then last year you you did something different. Um you wrote a, a book it was it was a Hugh Cullen book, but it was a 1588 a calendar of crime. Um explain to us why you you decided to do something different with Hugh Cullen.
2: It is it's five Long, short stories, I would say. that If you put them together, they do make a book because they take you through the year of 1588. And the idea of it was to write... um, I wanted to write a story for each of the Scottish Quarter Days. Mm. And an extra one for Yule because everybody likes Christmas stories, so we do. And of course, if you're writing about the Reformed Church, you know, yeah, and whether you celebrate Christmas or whether you don't celebrate Christmas, so the the idea was that there were there were going to be these four stories plus plus Yule, mm-hmm. and um, for each of the quarter days, which are um, Candlemas, Whit Sunday, Lamas, and Martinmas, and they would take you through the year, and they would be concerned with with really the old superstitions mm-hmm. and. Um, The tension between these superstitions and you know the reformed enlightened modern society (laughs) which um because it's very very hard to um, get people to uh, stop believing in the things they've always believed in whether these are miracles or ghosts or 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 the seasons yes or or, you know because people's lives were still very much controlled by by the the seasons the the rhythm
1: of the year and after 1588, you're now giving Hugh Cullen a bit of a rest.
2: Yes, that's right. I'm now writing a book which is set in Edinburgh in 1820, mainly. Oh, right. okay. So this it's,
1: is after the Enlightenment. Really. It is
2: after the Enlightenment, and it's just at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. And the context for it is um, William Blackwood's um, Edinburgh magazine and his shop on prince street it was at prince street at that time oh, really? and which was he operated as a kind of literary salon so People coming and, and going, and it also is about the um, the old theatre which used to be in Shakespeare Square where the where the Jeep G- the old GP <coughs> where the old post office was. I, I like the new town. It's always it's my favourite part of Edinburgh. Actually, I probably shouldn't
0: say that. I'm, I set my second hue coloured in the old town, but um, <laughs> yes, which I I, I do like the printing town. press. Yes, in, yeah. um, fate and fortune is uh, the printer's shop. There is fascinating.
2: Well, I suppose that sort of coming forward two hundred <clears> years because this is about it's about booksellers and printing and yeah. you know, it's about the literary world um very much everybody reads and everybody writes because they did in edinburgh at that time yeah
1: so it's a literary mystery
2: it is a literary mystery yes yeah. so there is a i mean the the historical context is so rich mm. it's about the multiple personalities that um, the writers for the um, edinburgh magazine blackwoods magazine used. Because they wrote under different names. They did write under different names. They wrote under each other's names. They pretend, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's about, you know... Talk about fake news. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yes. And also, you know, trolling because... Yeah! (laughs) You know... You can adopt an anonymity and you can say anything about anybody, and they did, yeah. you know, and um, even about people who were their close friends. And it ended up with um, John Scott of the London Magazine being mm. killed in a duel because he called them out for libel. I mean, they were libelling each other all the time, yes. but if you didn't actually know who'd written right. whatever it was that was said and you accused the wrong person, <laughs> then they could call you out and they'd have a duel, you know, yeah. and, and John, and Casey, still John Scott's case, he was killed. Say...
0: I didn't. It wasn't me that wrote that. Yes. I don't write for Blackwood.
2: Well, and there was a constant Prove shifting it. about who was the editor. <laughs> That's right. So, um, so the book is really exploring that. It's exploring the dangers of multiple personalities, and it's exploring um, anonymity and you know the license that you have when mm. you don't put your name to it, and how how this you That's know mean. can become can become toxic, as it does nowadays, yeah. you know, on the internet, because people think nobody knows who I am so I can do and say anything I like and of course it has tragic repercussions a
1: fictional central character I do I do yes and he's actually he's actually
2: he narrates the story which gives it a very different feel and tone um But like Hugh, he is a young character and he's someone who starts off being quite, um, he gets a job in Blackwood Shop when he's young Mm -hmm. and he starts off being um, completely drawn into and and starstruck, you know, by this world because he has literary aspirations himself and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then gradually, you know, becomes aware that it's really poisonous That's well, wonderful.
1: <laughs> we are very much looking forward to your literary mystery set in Edinburgh thank
2: you
1: and yeah. if you've not read any of the Hugh Cullen books yet then go out and snatch all of them while you can um, yeah. we've just redesigned the covers so they're looking particularly beautiful just now too thanks a lot
0: Shirley <laughs> thanks <you> very <laughs> much <laughs> So it's been really fascinating to be in 17th century Scotland. Yeah. Um, I've been really surprised at how interesting and exciting and fun it's been to read a poem that I thought wouldn't be accessible. Yeah. I think there's like a real personality and accessibility to the the voice yeah. of that poem, and the journey.
1: Yeah, I, I thought when we first decided to do this, I thought I would struggle mm. with this one to read it and mm. to get it and to understand it. But actually, the Scots wasn't hard to understand. No. And, you know, the uh, and as you say, her her personality completely shone through in,
0: in the poem. Um, and that's not to say that some of the ideas are hard for us yeah. to sort of understand, but that... Um, the poem was sort of, there was a clarity to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And, and also, you know, you, you always, you look at, you watch period dramas and things, and it's just all dark and bleak and black and, <laughs> and all this kind of thing. And then, but then you realise, when you read a poem like that, what the people were really like yes, and the passions yes, and that they Exactly,
0: had. and to understand how rich the idea of their their relationship with God or how central to life, how much time and mental energy and mm. emotional energy yeah. was bound up in that kind of thing.
1: Even though the context of, of her, her passion for, you know, the Kirk and all that, maybe we don't quite get that mindset. But you could argue that, you know that part of the personality is still within us now, you know, with mm. how people think about politics, how people yeah. think about their preferred modes of culture, mm. you know, mm. Mm. we are, st- we are, we can be still pretty
0: tribal, you know, yes. there's mods and rockers <laughs> as well as... <laughs> <laughs> Calvinists and yeah. Catholics. Yeah, yeah. Um, I often worry, wonder, you know, that, you know, we all talk about how the novel is like the genre that best expresses individual thought and feeling Mm, but i feel that once you start looking at literature from other centuries that massively predates the novel you know or the lyric poetry you know start there are thoughts and feelings and individual Mm. sort of questions absolutely like it comes out in literature in every age totally it's not the modernists didn't invent interiority no (laughs) exactly (laughs) yes and you know
1: yeah so go back in time folks (laughs) thank you elizabeth melville
0: for Uh, yes for showing us um a different side to sixteenth-century Scotland. Absolutely, and thanks to Shirley MacKay too. Yes, I would heartily recommend the Hugh Cullen novels. Really, really fun. A really fun way, and you know, beautifully researched, and the yeah. research is laid out in such a clever and masterful and entertaining
1: way. way. Yeah. yeah,
0: like it's meticulous but fun. Yeah. Um, can't recommend those enough.
1: Yes. So next time we will be talking Ian Crichton Smith's Consider Their Lilies, a little gem of a novel. Um it's probably maybe it could be described as a bit of a
0: it's not a lost classic, but it's probably not had its due as much mm. as it should. I'll be reading it for the first time. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, um but it's fifty years old almost. Yes, but Published I've heard nineteen
1: sixty eight. Yeah, and I've heard it recommended by so many people that whose opinions I do you know respect yeah. so I'm, I'm very excited to, to, to delve into Ian Crichton Smith's work here
0: absolutely and we will be um talking more broadly about the sort of cultural representation of the Highland Clearances as well absolutely so I hope you can join us then
1: thanks very much for listening cheerio